Coming up on Nerd She Wrote, we sit down at All-Star Weekend with John Hollinger and Dan Feldman and talk about inside the NBA front office and how decisions are made. And then after that, we have Dr. Nick Elam, inventor of the Elam ending, to discuss different things that he's been working on and his thought process behind the Elam ending. Welcome to the Back to Back Pod on the Athletic Podcast Network. This is Nerder She Wrote with your host, Dave Dufour, with Mo DeKeel and Seth Partnow. Are you ready to be entertained? Hello and welcome to a special all-star edition of the Nerder She Wrote podcast on the Back to Back podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dave DeFore, and Mo DeKeel is not in town, Seth. I've, I feel bad. Should we call him? No. Okay. No. I don't I don't feel bad enough to like break out Skype or put him on speakerphone. Or What's anything. the weather like in LA? No, I don't feel yeah, bad yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like 12 degrees here, and I, you know, he sent us the weather report for LA. In his stead, we've got the Athletics' own John Hollinger, and from NBC Sports, Mr. Dan Feldman. It takes two of us to replace him, I think. No, no, that's <laughs> it. That's not accurate. That that's we we pride ourselves on accuracy on this program, and that is absolutely not accurate. So we had dinner last night and uh, had a great conversation, and we're just going to recreate the entire thing here. No, that's not happening. Uh, I think we we where's touched the wine? on some things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where's the where's the wine in the in the Middle Eastern food? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Shout out to Nate Duncan and uh, Nate's sister for uh, for hooking us up at dinner. We have been trying on this show to clear up misconceptions, to kind of get an inside look from Seth and Mo's perspective. Two guys that have worked for teams. Obviously, John, you you just worked for the Memphis Grizzlies, and you know now you're back, making us all feel like we don't work hard enough on the media side. As Jason Quick called you, extremely prolific, extremely prolific, not just prolific, and so. We wanted to talk about guys that slipped through the cracks, like a follow-up on last week's show, because there are guys that slip through the cracks, go to Europe and develop, and then they just never get themselves back. As soon as we finished the show, you said, oh, I meant to bring up Jan Vesely. Yeah, just as a guy who who came over, we talked about guys getting put in the wrong roles. Jan Vasily comes over, and they try to turn him into a, a stretch big, and really he's a like, really a three was what they really wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, like it was it was a completely different mindset at that time, right? right? But but he's a, I mean he's he's but then he's gone back to Europe and being been one of the premier uh, premier kind of pick and roll dive and dunk guys, and it turns out that that's a useful model of a player in in the modern NBA, and and if that's the road he would have gone down, he. He probably never goes back to Europe. Anthony Randolph was a guy that I'd bring up at every single opportunity. You guys know he's shooting 50% from three on eight attempts a game in the EuroLeague this year. But he just he can't he can't make the money in the NBA that he a makes lot of those there. guys end up in that position. We had a guy Nick Calathis who is similar. Um, he was with us on a minimum, and he was a you know good enough NBA backup point guard. But he had a Greek passport, and he can go you know and go to Athens, play half as many games, and make twice as much money. So why would he ever come back? I, I saw him when I was in Serbia last week playing with Jimmer. That's a backcourt right there. Jimmer took over at one point in that game. Not to, not to, it's, it's really which, which, end, which end of the floor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Jimmer time. Jimmer always. Oh, yeah, it yeah. really was. So, how does this happen? Why aren't teams, and, and maybe they do, because you, you have your Brad Wanamakers, you have your Malcolm Delaney's, that guys that go over have pretty good. Euro career and then wind up coming back. But why don't we see more of that? I guess there's multiple reasons. Because we're so, you, you know, you're tracking the players in Europe 
through the season and you're kind of saying which of these guys can play in the NBA. And from that subset, you're also having contact with their agents and trying to figure out what their situation is. And there's no one-stop shopping to see what all the European contracts are and when they expire and everything. So there's you no just PCMS kinda, for, yeah, exactly, for, for European exactly. contracts. You have to do some digging to find out all that information. And some of these guys are on multi-year deals or whatever. And some of them you find out just they don't really feel like going back to the NBA. Like they did their thing over there and they tried or whatever. And now they make three, four million or whatever in Europe and they're and and that's after tax like yeah the tax yeah the tax deal in europe is is different because the team will typically pay the players taxes and play their lot pay their lodging so it is a better financial deal if the team actually pays you which (laughs) for the for the biggest teams it usually isn't a problem for some of the other teams can be a little more fly by night so just for for context sake that would that would that make like a four million like a a nominal four million dollar european deal broadly equivalent to six or seven nba is that kind of how the exchange again assuming that the that the the check's clear but yeah, but once once you get into the guys who make like the two three million a year in Europe with all the you know special sauce on top, you're gonna have trouble getting them back. Well, I mean that was the thing with Miritich when, when people looked at the numbers and the the reported fifteen million dollar a year deal came out. Well, he's making like seven or something in, in Barcelona. Yeah, I don't and, even think it was that. But but I mean, he legitimately probably took a lot less. It money was quality of life for him. Is, yeah. is everything I've heard. But when you're trying to bring these guys back, like, what's the process? I mean, it's just Seth. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have something to say? No, I thought we could not, scoot not at right all. by that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I have I have no comment on. No, I, I no, I have no I have no real knowledge sure, of, of sure. kind of kind of how how that all played out. Yeah. Um. I I do know that he had, he had kind of been bounced around a couple times and and uh, I think from a family situation was like the the notion of being in one place for several years was appealing. You can't get traded right. over yeah. there. So that's you could see how that could be appealing to certain guys. If we can go down a rabbit hole real quick that I'm sure Seth won't comment on. So he goes to Milwaukee, falls out of the rotation at the end of the playoffs, maybe isn't quite as happy as the, in the NBA. So that leads to uh, the Pacers who are planning to sign uh, Ricky Rubio then the Jazz were signed to, planning to sign Miritich and then the Jazz say, no, we want Bogdanovich instead. And the Pacers are on a new plan. And Malcolm Brogdon leaves Milwaukee. Uh, so the Bucks trading for Miritich in some ways maybe cost them Brogdon or at least created a Brogdon suitor. That's very butterfly flaps its wings. And, yeah, and, sliding doors right like there. Ashton Kutcher over here. So when you are monitoring these guys, like it just seems like there aren't a lot of, of guys that do come back from Europe. Yeah, I mean, basically... By the time we got to May, June, we had a pretty small handful of players every year that we were like, here's the Venn diagram of like, is this guy good enough? Is this guy going to be able to get out of his contract and willing to sign over here on what is? Because usually, honestly, those guys come back. They're signing minimum or close to it. The very rare exception. I mean, even Teodosic, when he came over, was for six and it was partly guaranteed and it was during the summer when everyone had money shooting out of fire hose right Right. and i I think that's the most anyone's ever come back from europe for if i'm not mistaken for for the his contract yeah oh i mean is there like a european free agent that has ever signed for more money than that i guess i don't think there is i mean i'm not talking about like I'm not talking about like when you you know draft Luka Doncic, you know right, what I mean? Right, right, right. Uh, but just somebody who was who was an undrafted European free agent. I don't think so. What about um like American guys who or who, American who, guys who, yeah. who come back for that matter? Because usually American guys who come back, I mean they've they're over there because they failed once, 
So like their market isn't going to be like eight million dollars, right? It's it, they're going to come back and take you know. It's it's all it's it's always seemed to me that that's that's maybe a little bit of a of a market inefficiency in that a lot like the guys who don't kind of make it the first time there's there's a, a, a an open question and usually it's shooting right mm-hmm. and a guy but if a guy goes over to Europe and proves he can shoot. I mean, it seems like those are. I mean, you look at some of the success stories with that, like you, you know, your Patrick Beverly's, your your PJ Michael Green, Michael Green, PJ Tucker. Like, okay, a guy goes demonstrates that that was his swing skill coming out, and maybe it wasn't worth, mm-hmm. you know, the the gamble wasn't right before you knew, but now the guy has demonstrated that skill or has improved that skill. Um, it seems like, given that you know the uh, uh, you know a taxpayer MLE is huge money compared to even even tax free euro dollars so it, it seems like that there's that ha- it's surprising to me that that's not a pool that's dipped into more well like shane larkin mm-hmm. could be an example this summer not Maybe, a lot not a lot of free he, agents not a lot of i mean he was a guy that i think everyone had at or near the top of the list after the year he had in um vittoria uh and then he signed with the celtics and it was it was pretty close to a minimum, right? Yeah. Which was, I think, probably below his market even, and just decided to go there and didn't really do anything, and then went went back to Europe. I'm I'm just not sure the second time and around around. Like, why would there be more than a minimum market for him this time around? Right. But I mean, clearly, when you watch him play, I mean, have you seen him play? I haven't seen him play okay. in Europe this year. So he's got like a super green light, mm-hmm. and I mean, he's he's a killer, mm-hmm. um, but. We talked about this a little bit. He wouldn't get the same. He wouldn't be treated the same if he came back here. So maybe the value just in there. Well, I mean, that's part of you got to watch these guys and figure out what kind of role they're going to fill uh, stateside. You know, like the Jimmer, perfect example, right? He scores 80 or whatever in China. But Bro. like you're not asking him to do that over here. Yeah. So do you think that guys that wind up going to Europe who do want to come back to the NBA, would they be better served like in 2020 to go to the G League? I think that's a choice you see more of them making. I think fewer of them do go over or they go over later. They say, I'm going to play in the G League for a year or two years. And then if I don't get the call, then I'll go over to Europe. I don't think they're thinking about like, like develop, like, I I just think they feel like they're, they're seen when they're in the G League and everyone's monitoring them and they can get 10 days in the middle of the season and, you know, get their foot in the door. Whereas once you go once you go to Europe, you're gone for the year basically. Like it's very tough to get yourself out of there. Usually, what uh, and the, I mean the the two way contracts. I know we've talked before about you're not the biggest fan of them just because of of the way they they can they sort of shrink the shrink the available pool of G League players. But that that makes up a little bit of the difference. You know, you you used to be you're, you're choosing between you know several hundred thousand, maybe a million dollars in Europe yeah. and. 25,000 or something. Now that has been a way to repatriate some guys uh, from overseas. Like, so two years ago, there was a guy we liked. Uh, he ended up signing with Denver instead, but um, Devon Akun Purcell yeah. had had a good year in Denmark, um, which is, um, I don't know why he was playing in Denmark, but anyway, um, the uh, um, and the two-way was a way to give him enough money to you know, kind of make it worth his while to come back and get him into a developmental program. So, you know, usually you do that, um, you know, I, 
think it's probably an open secret right now. Like you promised the guy his 45 days. So, you know, you say basically that that'll guarantee him he'll make like 500K or whatever, which is more than you're going to make in Denmark, certainly. And so that that's how a situation like that can happen. But, uh, you know, we've seen that with some other teams, too, where they'll bring back Americans from Europe. It's it's usually not guys from like FC Barcelona. You know what I mean? But uh, from, Jer- you know, Boston with Javante Green from Germany, situations like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a shame because Corey Higgins, I think, could play in the NBA. Yeah, he's gotten a lot better. His, you know, his first run through, I think, offensively was just uh, kind of rough. And yeah, now- but he's really he can really shoot now. So on, I think on this topic of guys who fall through the cracks, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, uh, and and sort of my thought is that um, it's easy to you know you talk about what kind of role will this guy have in the NBA if you're looking at Euro guys. I think that we probably go into that blind spot a little bit, even with college guys. And so guys who don't exactly fit what we're expecting is, or they're not coming from a program we expect them to come from. Uh, that's that's sort of one of the reasons why, like, okay, Terrence Davis, he's is he a is he a point guard? Is he a shooting guard? He's a four year player, so he's older. He doesn't shoot it great. He shoots it just okay. And there's all these sort of there's something there, but we're kind of because it doesn't fit neatly into something we're thinking about. That's sort of how he he kind of becomes sort of a late second round guy. And no, don't draft me because I'm not signing a two way situation. Mm-hmm. Um, is do you agree with that, or, or what? What? Do you, why do you think it happens that some of these guys just kind of? You know, I used to think it was because guys were like hidden geographically or um, or program wise, and I think there's a little of that. Like Pascal Siakam, I think if he hadn't, you know, if he hadn't been played in a playing in Las Cruces, New Mexico, in a nothing conference, I think more people would have gotten out and seen him, and he probably would have been pushed up a little. Um, so I still think. That happens a little bit with like guys who are guys who are like aren't highly touted and play in like the Intermountain West, um, but at the same time, it's so amazing to me how many guys hide in plain sight, uh, upperclassmen in major conferences, and just kind of aren't what people were thinking of. I mean, Brad Miller has always been the perfect example to me. You know, where he was like this really high level player on one of the best programs in the country and. We went undrafted, and that 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 part still just slays me. Um, but that, like Davis is a perfect example of that too. I mean, I guess a little more off the radar playing at Ole Miss. It's still the SEC, right? Like guys are still going to see you. You'd think. What about the bias against four-year players? Is it all just because of age and development curve? I mean, there are a lot of guys that play four years in college and are good basketball players that can contribute right away. Yeah. I, I get that it's a lower it's a lower ceiling potentially, but if you just want to get good role players, would it make sense? I mean, I, you don't want to take that guy maybe like in the lottery. But yeah, I mean, pe- see, people bitch about the bias against older players, but actually. The, when you really study it, um, the league, even in the last 10 years, probably hasn't been quite biased enough. And uh, yeah, uh, so it's I mean, there's but, but there's just individual variants with all these cases, you know, there's still but there's still seniors who can play. You know what I mean? No, there's so many more seniors. And so they're so naturally because of the popular like, you know, the guy, the really precocious players who come out as freshmen, sophomores, there's fewer of them. And so maybe, OK, the, of the role players, half end up being seniors, half end up being freshmen. But it's like of 
you know, oh, the yeah, the ten of twenty of the of the the freshmen that were drafted become rotation players, and ten of five hundred of the kind of on the radar seniors. And so naturally, it's like, oh, well, you know, you miss on these guys. Well, the 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 you know the the haystack is just so much bigger with, with the seniors, and and because they haven't shown that that precocity, and so the, like the notion that like somehow an older player is safer because they're more developed has been that's been kind of debunked ten ways to Sunday. It's because there's so much cherry picking of of the people who are like, well, Draymond Green, okay, that's why. I mean, you can come up with plenty. And he was a junior, of... and he had monster <laughs> stats, right? Like monstrous. Anyway, depends. I, digress. I mean, it depends how you look at the stats too. I mean, he had great stats. Anyway, you cut him. Yeah. Here's an interesting question for you. If there's something that's like fixably wrong with a guy, like a guy can't hit shots yet, but he's got a little something a little wonky, not like, you know, Lonzo Ball wrong side of his face wrong with his jumper, although they've done a nice job kind of straightening that out, but just something a little bit wrong, like a guy is maybe shooting on the way down or something like that, or a guy who is, man, he if he just got in shape, he'd be, do you feel like that's, that's a, that's an archetype that gets, that maybe gets overlooked a little bit, something that is more easily fixable than if we, well, if we teach this guy who has shown no feel how to play basketball, Uh that seems like that's a, you know, a weight loss regimen feels like a less of an ask than I do think teams push too hard on fat guys. I think actually getting guys in shape, it's it's just not that challenging. I mean, we obviously had a famous case in Memphis with Marcus Gasol, but I mean, I think even Luca when he came out, like he, I mean, there were definite concerns from the people at the top of that draft that like, okay, you're 18 and you gained weight over the course of a basketball season. Like, what's going on here? They've been able to get him in shape, and I don't think you know, like it hasn't been an issue at all. I, I think it goes on the other side too of guys who aren't strong enough yet, especially younger players. Kristaps mm-hmm. uh, Porzingis to me is a great example. He got pushed around a little bit when I watched him and showed some flash. And I'm like, I don't know. is, But he just need to get a little stronger. He's also naturally. got high hips, though. I, I'm not saying like he's going to push guys around the NBA, but he got strong enough to be a really good NBA player. And he wasn't there, I don't think, the year before he was in the NBA. And I think sometimes you worry too much. And I think Seth makes a great point of you've got to look at what the flaw is and see how correctable is. Not yeah, all flaws are the same. how fixable is this? Yeah. Because you're trying to solve for what this guy's going to be at, be when he's 25. And then, you know, the other thing with all these guys is just doing the detective work of the background of, you know, does he love basketball? Does he, you know, what are his habits off the court? You know, does he go out? Does he, you know, make poor life decisions? Does he ride horses? Stuff like that. Does he ride? I have a question for you as somebody who's done that work. How often are you surprised? Uh, by a player being a bust or, or really exceeding where he was drafted. Because uh, I feel like a lot of times on the outside, it's like other people knew that when a guy slips or goes higher than, than I would have expected, then you hear after the draft, oh, well, the background. Like, how often are you surprised? Guys who fell or rose in the draft, I usually we usually haven't been that surprised. I mean, there's definitely been surprise. Actually, the most surprising thing was obviously the first pick of the first draft that I ever was involved in was by far the most surprising pick I've ever seen take place, which was Anthony Bennett. So it was all downhill from there. But there's been guys who fell where I'm like, oh, yeah, I know why you fell. Who did you have first in that draft? Possibly. I'm trying to remember what I even had for that because I wasn't we had the 60th pick and I think that was our only pick. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We had 41 and 60. 
like we, we didn't spend a lot of time on number one. I'll tell you that much. Cause that, that's the other thing. Like you tend to, you focus all your energy on, on your pick range. Usually. Were you considering Anthony Bennett at 41? <laughs> yeah, We were right down. It was this close between him and Jamal Franklin. <laughs> so with the draft process. Okay. Um, when you're looking at guys, is, is there a certain point all right, where you say, well, our pick is too good to to get a guy based on what he is today. So like we don't necessarily need the best player available. We need the guy who's got the highest ceiling. I think we always kind of thought that in the draft best like highest ceiling. We said no best player where. available was like best best prospect best is what I was called. Yeah. Right? And you would do that no matter the pick. Yeah, I mean, you have the you have trades and free agency to deal with the roster and positions in the here and now. You only get one chance, you know, in the draft it's a talent grab, right? If you fill a quote-unquote need but draft somebody that sucks, then you wasted your pick and you still have the need. So you didn't you didn't do anything. And even if you even if you draft a guy who is if you're aiming for just okay and that's what you get, you haven't really you haven't really done much. So like the 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 value proposition kind Most of Most of the value proposition on the draft is is the long tail of, you know, can you you know, luck into Nikola Jokic with a second round pick type of thing, right? Because for somebody to just be like, if you draft somebody who's a back end rotation player, that's great, but you could have done that with your minimum exception too. You know what I mean? So like, you you haven't really changed the value proposition on on your asset pool. That I, much. I also think it's really hard to judge who has this upside at draft. I mean, you mentioned Jokic. Like, who would have thought at the time he could become this All NBA center? If you asked me about his upside, of more like, yeah, you know, you could see how he develop into a, a helpful role player. Yeah, uh, I think everyone who saw him thought that that he had a skill level to him, but there was a, and honestly, like there was all kinds of background questions and stuff. I mean, we were talking about it last night, you know. But is he in, in, will he ever get in shape? He's, he was another guy, you know, who's a, I guess, a conditioning one. Um, e- Ethan Strauss says uh, fat is potential in disguise. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and uh, you know, there are questions about his commitment to the game, even from people who were like his backers. <laughs> you know what I mean? That that It's really interesting how that one turned out. That's You, you talk about commitment to the game. That's something that I always found. That, that There's a lot of these things, especially on the background, where the same piece of information, if you like a guy as a player, you can spin it positively. Oh, if absolutely. If you don't like a guy, like the commitment to the game, like the difference between someone being a well-rounded person and and having too many outside interests. Like, you know what I mean? They're, they're like, <laughs> yeah. you know, there, there are certain players, like, I think part of the reason, like, Jared Allen fell in the draft was because he likes to build computers. Right. And, like, so does he love basketball? Well, he, okay. It's possible to do both, but, mm-hmm. like, um, and, you know, there, there was all, I mean, obviously there was stuff on tape from him at, at Texas where his, his motor wasn't always the highest. Yeah. But then <laughs> you see that he has this other interest and you kind of connect those things in your mind when they maybe aren't. And but but that's just to me the classic example of 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 recent example of a guy where, you know, you take a piece of information you got on background and you fit it to a narrative and yeah over index. And it's just like well, the operative the operative question is always: Are you interested in X along with being interested in basketball, or are you interested in X? Much more, much more than you're interested in in basketball, um, like video games, for it, instance. Is this like a scout <laughs> bias thing, where a scout likes a guy, and will paint, you know, uh, the, the I guys? Think I don't think it's I, limited to scouts at all. Yeah. I think it's I think it's every like you know you you 
you want to you want to be in a situation where people don't have their guys, but I think on some level that's that becomes sort of natural, and and it, then it's it, the, the temptation to want to to shade those things one way or another. Like you know, ideally you would never do that and you'd play everything down the middle, but like in the real world, you know, it's it it, it you if you like a guy the same fact you know he's a okay he's he's a jerk to his teammates or he's a fiery winner yeah you know and it, it That's basically a great any, anything you it, anything you say almost like okay there's some guys who are just like the you know there's some reddest of red character flag guys but that's a small group of players everything else is sort of like we're interpreting we're interpreting a like an 18 year old based on it's a Rorschach. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the tricky thing is loving the game is so important. Great article today about Eddie Curry and the Players' Tribune about how he didn't love the game. And a lot of his problems trace back to that because he's pushed to basketball because he's tall. But you're right. Like, how do you judge what's an outside interest of a well-rounded person versus somebody who's not that interested in basketball? But it is really important to identify who loves the game if you can. I'm not sure you can. It seems like that that's more of an issue with guys who are like seven footers. Oh, with the bigs, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, what the hell else are you going to do? Yeah. It, I mean, there's a ridiculous percentage of American seven footers that wind up making the NBA. Yeah. Because like. Well, now that they've now that they've <laughs> yeah now that they've adjusted the heights to get the real heights, the percentage yeah. is even higher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, the NBA did lose a few seven footers, so yeah. You know, pour pour some out for for Daniel Tice Hang being, being six ten. Are we actually yeah. pretending like the NBA really did the real measurements? Yeah, we're we're absolutely really pretending that we're we're pretending. Okay, all right. I just want to make sure because Kevin Durant still didn't. Didn't hit seven foot, right? Well, here, here's the thing. I mean, you can slouch. You can you can right. measure. Like, I do believe they measured them and put down what the measurement is. But how are you going to tell a player stand up straighter? I mean, they do it at the combine. Do they really? Do they tell players to stand up straighter? Yeah, no, you get away with all kinds of nonsense at the combine. There was you, the infamous uh, Pat Connaughton uh, short-arming the standing reach yeah. so that he could have like a 42-inch vertical. I mean, yeah, but that's you know, you, this weekend. Do you think yeah. he'd be in the dunk contest without doing that? That's a big part of his reputation. The myth building, yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's the difference between him having a 40-inch vertical and a 44-inch vertical. And, yeah, yeah. And somehow, like, his... His team workout measurements for his wingspan are very different than his combine or for his, his standing that reach. That was the first thing we yeah. did when we brought him in. I'm, yeah. uh, I don't know if you guys did the same thing. We we remeasured him, you know, because we were like, "There's there's no <laughs> way this is we, right." No, that was that was before I was with the box, but they don't. Oh, okay. They at the time they didn't do vertical tests, so they just did standing reach, and mm. it's like, well, that's, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's. Yeah. Wait, yeah. You, yeah. have you been have you been hanging from like a like a pull up bar? Your your arms are suddenly three and a half inches longer. Uh, so is that, I mean that's him just trying to game the system. Yeah, for for the for the yeah. vertical leap. Yeah, so yeah. I mean that's that's been I'm something. Amazed more guys didn't wear shoes with lifts to the combine because there's some there's still some people who want to look at height with shoes rather than height you without play shoes. Play in shoes, which is a, well, I'd rather measure a guy's height in the shoes he's actually going to play in. Uh, you know, I think there's yeah. value in that, but yes, lifts are different. No, I, I play in these stripper shoes. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually don't care about a guy's height. I only care about his standing reach and, and his wingspan because it's about your functional height. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, height doesn't matter. Uh, real height, like, do you have a long neck? Like, there are plenty of guys that are 6'6", but they have a long neck. So, like, functionally, they're not 6'6". Do you remember a guy who played for Indiana named Jim Lindemann? Was that, was that his name? He was a... Uh, he was. He, I think he was right around the time of Calvert Cheney. He was seven foot, but was really like 
Six believe, eight with a with a super yeah, yeah. I believe I saw him play for the Fort Wayne Fury, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. But right, I mean that you guys do that, right? Like you, measure you're not, next, yeah. <laughs> you're, I mean, no, there's, there's height. Like, there's, no, there. I mean, there's there's like calculations you can do sure. off of like wingspan, standing reach that say this guy plays, you know, a, a functional height calculation. It's not perfect, and I like I do think that at, that there are some benefits in terms of vision. To, to actually, you know, kind of having a periscope. But uh, but at the same time, it's probably if you're, you know, a long neck and short arms is probably not the ideal basketball body. Yeah, yeah. I don't think a, uh, a Tyrannosaurus Rex <laughs> yeah. is going to be very good at basketball. Well, Stephen Hyluck has, has been pretty good this year. You so. know, there is a thing with guys with shorter arms being able to shoot. But is that? <laughs> I think no. I think that's selection bias, though. It is. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. Like, how else are you going to make it? Yeah. If you, yeah. If you can't play defense, you better be able to shoot. Maybe transitioning off that yeah. point a little bit. With something else we talked about last night, which is something that 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 you and I have talked about a little bit, is sort of it's not necessarily attention, but sort of the uh, the the front office management of our roster and the coaching management of our roster. Yeah are often pointing the same direction, but sometimes diverge. And it's not in a nefarious way. It's just based on kind of the tasks that they're assigned to, to accomplish. And, and so uh, what, one of the examples that you talked, uh, talked about last night was, you know, all right, Portland wants Anthony Simons to get the backup point guard minutes. The only way that they could, that, 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 you know, from a roster standpoint, they can assure that happens is to not sign a backup point guard, a veteran backup point guard, because if they do, that's the guy who's going to get the minutes. Um, so just kind of what were some of your experiences dealing with that inherent kind of tension of, of OK, we kind of want to see what this young guy has. We, you know, we want to put guys in different situations so we have a better evaluation versus the coach who I want to win these games and yeah. I want to keep my players happy. I'm not sure we ever totally mastered that. It it is definitely difficult when you have like like you said when you have a younger player that you want to play or that you think is good enough to play or that you think is better than your veterans that are playing. I think from a coaching perspective, I I don't think this was a Grizzlies thing at all. I think it's just a league-wide thing. If there's a tie, they're going to play the veteran. If there's not a tie, they might still play the veteran. <laughs> and uh, and just there there's a lot that goes into that. I think there's safety in that from the coach's perspective. I think there's um, it makes managing the locker room and other things easier a lot of times. And they have enough other shit to deal with. In fairness, that you know, it's like one more thing. Like I don't I don't need this. You know, it's my it's ten minutes a night for my backup point guard. Like I you know. This is a thing I don't need. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to put this guy out there. So sometimes, you know, taking options away can be helpful in in that regard. Can't start you can't start Peña at first base tonight cuz I just traded him. Yeah. Is like the is, you know, no, we're going to play Scott like, like the money yeah. ball example. You're going to play Scott Hatterberg because we traded all the other first basemen. Yeah. And exactly. that's that's kind of the extreme extreme example. And that's the kind of thing that would probably never happen in baseball now because the lines of authority are kind of much clearer than they used to be. But it's still in in basketball and because of differences in the sport, it's probably still more kind of bifurcated into the the different realms a little bit. But like how much subversion actually happens? I mean, the the Portland example is a good one. Mm -hmm. You know, I I it's I still think it's really uncommon. Yeah. I mean, uh, Rajon Rondo still, you know taking minutes away from Alex Caruso. 
Yeah, but I, like, do the the Lakers might think he's good. I don't know. Yeah, who who in Los Angeles are you sure thinks that's wrong? Oh, you mean with the Lakers? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, you don't think the front office thinks that's bad? Maybe. I mean, it, he's objectively bad. Rajon Rondo is awful. The front yeah, office signed him and then signed him again. Yeah, yeah. All right, fair, fair, <laughs> fair. And give him a player option. Yeah, okay. Here. Yeah. yeah, so they've subverted themselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, not, maybe, it's, a, it's not an issue of subversion. It's it's sabotage. self-sabotage. It's sabotage. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's backward. Maybe Vogel's playing him to show the front office, stop signing this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about coaching front office alignment. Thank you, Seth, for getting me to stop saying synergy. You know, like how often are you guys like sitting down with the coaching staff or – you know, at least the head coach and actually saying, hey, these are like the organizational goals and this is, you know, what we want to accomplish. Obviously, you know, every team wants to win, but you're not every team is a winner. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're talking about development goals and things like that, like, I mean, how often are you guys checking in? And I don't think it's like big formal conference room meeting thing. It's like the coach and especially the general manager sort of kind of have a constant like back and forth and they're talking and seeing each other at practice and most teams now have somebody from the front office who goes on the road for at least most of their trips so it's just uh dialogue you know what i mean and yeah a, and a back and forth and i think it's much more things can happen more organically when that relationship is is good and there's a lot of honest communication you know you can adjust and then you don't fly, you're right? never because you're never going to always agree it's how you know a lot of this stuff just comes down to how do you disagree you know and do you you know do you manage this these things like normal people or you know <laughs> or not a lot of a lot of normal people in in this industry <laughs> so actually no but really to that is that uh, something that I've always found fascinating is are those dis- discussions easier or harder when you're the, 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 I mean, you were with the Grizzlies in very, you know, some very different places in, in their yeah. life cycle as a, as a competitive, uh, you know, in terms of competitiveness, are those, are those kind of development versus competitiveness kind of discussions easier or harder when you're good or bad oh they're way easier when the team sucks yeah you're just like look like i'm sorry we've you know we've lost our last nine games by an average of 17 points like there's no there's no, there's nothing you can come back at me with it's like right. we're screwing up this machine you know like so I, I think it's i think those conversations are way easier when the team sucks at, but are you in a weird spot there where a coach you know obviously things are going bad the coach is you know either trying to save their job or you know, but I actually think because, fight for their next job. Yeah, they are, but they. I, th- I think it's actually easier because they they also um, like when the team is going really well. I think it's more the opposite, where the, the coach feels like they're you know they got some juice now. You know, where I'm the captain of this ship. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Uh, should we should we actually talk a little bit about the season or no? Is that I mean, is there one of those going on right basketball now? Basketball. I didn't. Yeah. So, all right, we we what thirty games left, roughly for every team. About thirty yeah. games. Who who's the front runner? Is it is it Milwaukee? Do you, do you trust? Do you trust Bud in the playoffs? Yeah. <laughs> trust? No, but they're really good. They are. They're and, historically good. And I think they got a very valuable test from Toronto last year. I think that's something almost all champions have to go through is being pushed in the playoffs like that, learning how to win on that level and. I'm not saying the Bucks are going to win, but I think they're ready in a way they weren't last year. Mm-hmm. And they're just as good, if not better. And they don't have quite as formidable a Toronto team to 
go through. I mean, much respect to Toronto. I mean, obviously they're way better than I think anyone thought they'd be this year. But I still think when they line up their five best players against Milwaukee's five best players, they're at a disadvantage. No comment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my my self imposed embargo is over, but that's yeah, like yeah. that's still that's what, like I, that's not it's still not a you know it, it, I can be much more rational about twenty nine teams still yeah, than yeah. I think and we'd say the same about I think John sure. would say the same about Memphis. And, and in the West, like do you guys? I, I mean, is it Clippers or Lakers, or do you feel like it's a little bit more wide open? I don't see how the Lakers get past Memphis in the first round. <laughs> John Morant, <laughs> killer man. <laughs> John, no, John Morant no. is like one of five players I would say I would pay like a thousand dollars to go watch. I mean, he's just he's just that exciting. But they're gonna get swept. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I think it's it's the Battle of L.A. I think is the the default. I think Houston and Utah kind of loom as like these goofy wild card teams. I love Denver, like Denver's, man, yeah, they're good. They got a nice team. They I feel need like Millsap to be like. But they're going to lose to the Clippers in the second round, right? Like, they- I feel like we like we collectively just kind of give Denver a pat on the head. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know, you know, like it's, it's, you guys are it's a it's a cute season you guys are having, and and I don't think I don't know if that that's like <laughs> that's the most disrespectful thing anyone has oh, ever said. No, I'm not saying show. we should do that. I'm <laughs> no. saying that's collectively what we oh, have oh, done. What we do okay. No, the most that's I mean, I am right. I am describing what has okay. happened. I'm not saying that's. I'm yeah. not saying you're like, right. Well, yeah. I think it's because they have so many guys that we like to watch. You know, like when Jamal Murray is not Jamal Murray. Well, when he's Jamal Murraying, not Jamal. You know, yeah. like when he's not messing up and doing goofy stuff, he's so much fun to watch. And Jokic is just a. Yeah, you know, a treat. And then Will Barton's been really good this He's been year. Great. Uh, well, they've gotten a lot of like Jeremy Grant has has really like figured out how to play with those guys, and, mm-hmm. and it's come around. Mike Porter Jr. There's a, speaking of Will Barton. There's an interesting side note. There's yeah. an interesting kind of circle of NBA life thing going on there because uh-huh. Will Barton was kind of a fringy guy, and then he gets traded to Denver right at the end of his of his rookie contract with Portland. Yeah establishes himself as an NBA guy there and is now a, a high rotation guy. And he's he's such a such a part that like Malik Beasley never really gets a chance to establish himself in in Denver. And so now Denver trades him to Minnesota where he now has the opportunity to become right you know at right at the end of his rookie contract. And and so I, I think that's a you know getting he back gets to a chance it. to be Will Barton. Yeah, exactly. He gets the chance to be the next one. And so have yeah, you I, looked I feel at, like, so that team falls apart without Will Barton. His passing is super important for that for for Denver. Well, he's their best perimeter creator, and that's the biggest thing that they're probably a little short on when you compare them to other playoff teams. Um, what the hell happened to Gary Harris? By the way, he just good stopped. Question. Didn't he? Didn't he used to be good? So yeah, did I imagine that? Yeah. He's had the ankle issues uh-huh. the last two seasons, and I'm uh, known as an ankle truther because I think these guys come back from ankle injuries too soon, and it and it it wrecks your shot. When when you have an ankle injury, it wrecks your shot. I mean, that's that's the start of your shot, mm-hmm. um, and he just can't shoot anymore. Mm-hmm. Ever since he hurt his ankle, I, I think he just it seems like you, a problem. Do you think yeah. he can come back from this? I mean, yeah, he's just got to heal. Yeah, but th- these guys, I mean, and this is something that, even though we talk about it a lot, like everyone's playing hurt, I still don't think that we provide the proper context for people that don't understand just how hard it is to play hurt. You know, nobody's a hundred percent. But especially guys coming back from ankle sprains. I mean, Marcus Smart's career has been derailed 
by ankle sprains. I, 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 I will stand by this. I think Marcus Smart would be like a 38% three-point shooter if he didn't have paper ankles. Um, and so, like, we just don't do a good enough job of setting that context. Gary Harris, I, I do think it's the ankles. I just think he's just been struggling to be healthy. He's still a good player. I was surprised that they didn't move him. But I think that they had some deals on the table um, that didn't come. I just the don't think there was a big appetite. A good player right I just now, don't right? think there was a big appetite around the With league contract, for him at that yeah. number. Yeah, I mean, it was 17? Yeah. Yeah. Something but like it's, that. It's, it's, got a few years, years, right? it's a lot for a guy that's not shooting or defending. To, I mean, I, I agree with you that that's actually the case, but like devil's advocate a little bit. Say one of the, uh, what do you call them, the forlorn five? Yeah. Um, uh, has it shrunk to forlorn four now? Three? It's uh, so Memphis is out, Cleveland is out, out, but Detroit is in, okay. and they are just as forlorn yeah, as the yeah, others. Yeah. Certainly. Wait, yeah. what about Atlanta though? Did they use their cap space? No, no. no. Okay, so Atlanta still, still has it. Plenty, Charlotte, plenty Charlotte it. still has it. New York still has it. it. Detroit. But given that you know you you, you are getting you know a, that's a, that's even sort of a semi compromised Gary Harris. It's still a reasonable number, and you're not you know you sign him on the free agent market. You're going the full. Four years and blah blah blah. Yeah. So it's you it, get a solid wing in his twenties. Like yeah, you can do something. With and that. and and you're not the 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 kind of the downside of that kind of fourth year is is is, is kind of he's he's playing that fourth year for someone else right now. Yeah. So the, the it, tricky it, thing is who does just dropping them in your lap right, though. Right. Like Those teams don't have somebody. Up, yeah. Right. But it, yeah. But I, I I'm I'm just surprised more teams like again don't. Like I, that's part of why I liked what Atlanta did because getting getting Capella is like, are they going to do better than that with their cap space this summer, or is yeah. like pre pre spending it on a guy who is on a perfectly solid deal at a position of need? Anyway. Well, the problem with pre spending is there's a narrower pool of players available who are who you want, plus another team is willing to get rid of. In free agency, there are you know a hundred guys, and it's easier to find somebody. Like it's a great idea in theory. I'm not sure in practice how many opportunities. I don't know there are. this summer though. This summer, I've well, this is not a good summer for my. There's, there's, there's no restricted summer. free agents this summer outside of. I mean Brandon Ingram and then. Uh, I mean it's every signed an extension. Yeah. So for part of it is they all got extended. Unless you're a big Jakob Pertle guy, it's uh, not a great not a great offer sheet. I'm summer. a big Jakob Pertle guy, but I, I mean I, I think that uh, he's not a needle mover necessarily. He's a good player, but I don't think he's like, you know, the the missing piece for a playoff team. Speaking of, of of missing pieces for playoff teams, uh, what about what do we think of the now Robert Covington full uh, Houston Rockets? And also, you know, again, we want to give uh, congrats to to, to, <laughs> to Dan Feldman for, <laughs> for engineering the the four team trade, even if it was slightly different than his. Hey, have deadline. you thought about the fact that Daryl might have listened to that and just said, "Oh, oh, this is a, this this could happen." Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm the one who made him think. Yeah. Robert Covington, yeah, he could help us. Yeah. Yeah. I, and a straight-up <laughs> trade doesn't work, so we have to get other teams involved. <laughs> yeah, what I'd, would Dan Feldman do? That's a good yeah, question. That's that, what we should always be asking. Yeah, I, oh, yeah I'll start, but um, I, I think you said it best. For people who complain that everyone plays the same way, the Houston Rockets are playing a completely different style of basketball than we've ever seen. It could completely change the game. Could. Good. Would would we like this better if they had Chris Paul instead of Russell Westbrook? You know, all right. Different. So this is interesting because because we've we've gotten into this. Uh, you know, uh, Zach Harper and I had a disagreement over this, but Russ is playing the best basketball of his career right now. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm not sure anymore mm-hmm. because now it's, it's Russ and shooters. And so you have this really unique thing where Russ is, he's almost Giannis. I, I would almost, the analogy is like, okay, they traded their, their pick and roll dive man. Russ kind of is like, mm-hmm. they, they don't he's get into it. Man. They don't get into it the same, same way, yeah. but, it, but he is kind of that same, you know, Harden does something, draws attention. Russ attacks the middle of the floor. Yeah. And requires either you to come to him or, or something else. So it's, well, it's I said a very before similar. the season, they should be using him as the center on offense. He should be, have been the role man for mm-hmm. James Harden. And that's, you know, they don't, X's and O's wise, they don't, they, don't, they don't do that exactly, right. but it's functionally a very yeah. similar yeah. thing. So I, I've come to believe four out is, the, you know, it depends on personnel, obviously, yeah. but four out is the optimal way to play because then you can put pressure on the rim in a way you can't yeah. in five out, and that's Russ. Well, they're playing five out, but what's happening is now you've got all this space and Russ can attack the lane. Yeah. And, and his finishing at the basket the last three years has been the best of his career. Um, so I, while I would say maybe it's better with Chris Paul, I can't say for sure because Russ is just playing so well right now. Well, if you have Chris the Paul, other, you probably just, have the counterpoint – you can make is that on a team that's small, you might not ever get a rebound if you have Chris Paul instead of Russ. Even though he is a pretty good rebounder for for his size, for a guy who's yeah like six six foot, if that yeah. And all the other thing is is Chris Paul's a very like the the if you have Chris Paul on the floor, you play very deliberately, and if you have Russ on the floor, you play pedal to the metal. Yeah, and, it's very different stylistically. Yeah. I mean, you're and, already deliberate with Harden, obviously. Yeah, and then but they're but you know with but, but they play it. They play. They've even with Harden, you know, caressing the ball as much as he does. They've played so much faster this year. Yeah, and and I, and I just wonder if a if not if playing slower with a team that small. Yeah, it's tough to be play, play slow and small. Yeah, is yeah, tough. Although I mean that's that's also that's one of those things that's just sort of a truism that we've never really examined. I don't know. Maybe maybe it would work. So I don't know. Because you would think I mean one of your advantages is going to be right. that you'll be able to get up and down the court more right. quickly than the other team. So if you punt on that advantage, then you have to be even better in the other areas. Well, so if this experiment works and it's a copycat league, there will be some small slow teams at some point. We'll see it. So what's going to happen to all these American seven footers? They're going to be out of jobs. They're going to be starting centers. They'll play ten minutes a game, get subbed out when the game gets real, yeah. and and be the first uh, be, by the second game of every playoff series. They'll start the they're, first game. They're, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they're the adjustment. The, 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 the tick the box. Be, that should be Myers Leonard's nickname. The, <laughs> the adjustment. <laughs> you know, after they lose their first playoff game, they're going to be like, okay, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. Uh, That's the meanest thing anyone's ever done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Um, so Miami. All right, let's talk about Miami for a minute because uh, they're doing really interesting stuff. I, I think, obviously, Bam has, you know, he's yeah. an all-star and rightfully so. How do you feel about adding Iguodala and Jay Crowder to, to that team? Do you feel like it, it really is a needle mover? Like, is that a big deal for them? No. The the needle mover was the fact they got off all that money. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, the needle mover nice was for, the, for their next summer, right? That, the needle helpful. mover would have been getting Gallinari, but like you know, they upgraded themselves at their seventh and eighth man, right? Or whatever. Like, okay, whatever. You're, you're still like, I don't think it changed their outlook. Yeah, I mean, well, I think so. it marginally up adds to their chance of winning a playoff series or two, but I don't think it changes like what tier of the league they're in. No. Yeah. 
So I, we bounced off of them a little bit, but I, but I'm like, what do, is is Houston just a you know we talk about them in the playoffs? Are they just strictly, uh, probably not? But I just don't know because that really seems like what this move was about. Like they knew they weren't good enough before. And now we just don't. We're know. trying to get a puncher's chance. Yeah, I, I yeah, am know, convinced like the, they're good I, enough. I think it was an easy move for them to make because they knew they weren't good enough. Yeah, and the right tail of is the right tail of the distribution is their friend. Like yeah. in terms of like everything goes perfectly, we're better than if everything went perfectly the other way. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. They they increase their ceiling. Yeah. Quite a bit. But again, the puncher's chance having having five shooters on the floor at a time, and and they're gonna. I mean, honestly, like the Lakers are gonna. Struggle a little bit, I think, to guard them. Yeah, if they end They're, up if they end up playing each other in the second round. Yeah, the the Lakers have some perimeter defense issues, and and so I think that the the Rockets could exploit it. Now, the Rockets are going to get exploited on the other end because the Lakers are you know huge. Yeah. So the question is, do the Lakers get sucked into like posting up Anthony Davis and shooting seventeen foot twos every trip? That's so. That's I mean that's the issue. I mean, given Vogel's track record, how do we feel? Like, do do we expect him to stick to their game plan, or are they gonna are they gonna try to post? I mean, let's. I mean, I think LeBron's gonna have a huge impact on whatever the plan is. Sure. Well, so. well LeBron in the post has been insane this year. I don't know if you guys know. He's like one point two four points mm-hmm. per possession on post ups. Yeah. That's the type of thing that they, you know, historically his teams have pulled out more in the postseason. So. Yeah, I mean, there's with those two guys. I mean, they have a lot of interesting ways they can take the the series that Houston may not be able to answer. I just they don't just, know. They just did. They, the, the problem is they just didn't add anything on the perimeter. So going small for them is is even if they kind of wanted to try to match up, which I don't always think is the best. To, to well, when you can put a winner and a champion like Rondo out there, I think Dave will support this argument. <laughs> that, I, I thought you were going to go JaVale McGee there. I think you a champion like JaVale McGee. Um, uh, yeah. Quinn Cook, also on the roster. Don't don't forget. Heart of a champion. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, I think that's pretty good. We uh, probably talked about too many things. But uh, that's it for uh, this week's show, and we'll be back. Once there's some games to talk about after the All Star break. Oh, we should also tease. We'll have some special bonus. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With, We're with some some of our some of our athletic teammates will come through, and we'll have uh, a a few team specific. Uh, yes, yeah, we're gonna items. Yeah, I think we've got some special guests rolling through in the uh, over the weekend. So specialer guests. Yeah, more Sorry, special guys. than than John Hollinger and Dan Feldman. Pretty, wow. pretty low bar you set yeah. there, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. And now joining the show to talk about. The famous Elam ending. We've got Dr. Nick Elam, Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Ball State University and creator of the aforementioned Elam ending. Uh, Dr. Elam, thanks for coming on Nerder She Wrote. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. So uh, I want to start with a a little bit of an explanation because I I think that there's a lot of assumptions being made for, for the average NBA fan or basketball fan in general. What is the Elam ending? Sure. So the Elam ending in a nutshell is that you would play most of the game with a clock and you play the last part of the game without a clock. And that that right there is the Elam ending. Now, as far as the specific settings of the Elam ending, that would vary based on the league or the event. Uh, we saw a version at the All-Star game where they shut off the clock for the entire fourth quarter of the game. Uh, I actually prefer a version where you would keep the clock until the last few minutes of the game. 
again, it's all whatever is uh, tailored best for that particular league or event. And, and just just for clarification, you didn't name it after yourself, correct? Right. Uh, back in 2007, and for several years, I called it the timeless format. But that was a little bit of a misnomer because it's not completely timeless. Uh, and then in 2013, I... I switched to a very on-the-nose name, which was the hybrid duration format. It was a hybrid of timed and untimed play, uh, but it wasn't until 2017 when TBT adopted the format that they named it the Elam Ending. Doc, you're a better person than me. If I come up with my own thing, I promise you it's going to be called the Tequil whatever. Uh, Tequil Theory, whatever. You're just a way better person disaster. than me. All my stuff's great, Dave. Stop it. Uh, but that you're you're a much better person than I, because I immediately would have been like, "Yep, putting my last name on this one." So, uh, I, I think one of the the important thing to talk about is it, really it underpins the entirety of of the the methodology. I guess is you know starting from sort of first principles. What problem were you trying to solve with with this ending, and 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 how does kind of everything flow from there? Sure. So uh, the flaw, I would say, is a very fundamental flaw. And it's a flaw that uh, is almost unique to basketball, where uh, a game often reaches a stage where a team's only recourse to stay in the game is to deliberately and overtly violate the rule of the game. Uh, to, to commit a foul on purpose is their only way of staying in the game. To me, that was enough of a fundamental flaw to be addressed, uh, even going back to 2004 when I didn't have an idea, a good idea of how to fix it. Um, and even in 2007, when I first thought, first really started to get serious about this idea of, uh, you know, maybe eliminating the clock from the last part of the game, uh, that in itself was enough to address. But then, you know, exploring it more, researching it more, realizing that uh, not only is it just not a, you know, a, an appealing strategy, but that it hardly ever works. Uh, that when a team has to resort to that fouling strategy at the end of the game, uh, that they only go on to win the game about 1% of the time. So here we have this flawed, I mean, this fundamentally flawed approach uh, that hardly ever works and is not appealing to uh, onlookers, and yet it hardly ever works, and yet it's still the trailing team's best option. And so, I, I mean, going back to 2004, we kicked around ideas, my buddies and I, have, and, and they weren't original, they weren't viable. It was just this idea of, well, maybe if you just punish the fouling team more harshly, then that would make that uh, strategy go away. But the problem with just punishing them more harshly is if you, if you don't give them a better alternative than fouling, then it's not going to help. In fact, it might actually lead to more fouling and fewer comebacks than we already see. You have to give them some better alternative. And I believe that's what the Elam ending does is that it gives trailing teams a better alternative. And that is to just play legitimate defense and rely on stops and scores. And as long as they can get stops and scores, they can, uh, they can stay in the game. So that was one problem I thought was worth, worth addressing. And the other, another thing out of many, uh, was kind of this phenomenon, another phenomenon that is unique to basketball. I think, I think that basketball is absolutely one of the most exciting sports to watch as a game unfolds. But I think 
there's a few characteristics of basketball that make it a little bit harder to look back and retrospect and remember specific plays or scenarios. Uh, basketball is very fluid action compared to, say, football or baseball that has very discrete action where it might be easier to remember specific plays or scenarios. Another thing about basketball is that it has a very high scoring rate, so it's hard for any specific scoring play to stand out in memory. And there's no guarantee that the game's going to end with any sort of an accomplishment under the regular format. And again, when you, when you combine all those different factors, even if you have a, a great game and a big game, uh, sometimes there's really not even one uh, memory or signature moment that stands out uh, in retrospect. A couple things here. Okay, let's let's start with your, your your beginning point of like teams having to resort to fouling is a result of them not being able to you know they had the whole game to kind of keep this close. Like I don't know if I feel like we should reward them for being down to allow them the ability to be able to come back down the stretch. You're in this situation because in the third quarter you didn't defend hard enough or didn't play well enough or whatever and and things like that. Like I don't know necessarily if that's kind of just a smart way of going about it in that sense just because it's like I feel like you're really punishing a team that has built a lead and has played well for three quarters of the game and now we're going to just open up this whole new opportunity for another te- for the team to come back and just get hot all of a sudden and, and, and get going in the fourth quarter because now it's just they got to tar- hit a target score. Like, I don't know if that's necessarily a fair thing there to the other, to the team that's done their job for the most part. So I always say uh, when I hear this concern that I don't think that the Elam ending gives the uh, trailing team an advantage. Um, you know, I, I still think that, but I think the, I think the disadvantage should be the deficit. I think the deficit itself should be the disadvantage that they face. I don't think that they should have these additional artificial disadvantages where now they have to foul and hand away free points and, uh, you know, where they have to rush and force up ugly shots when they're on offense. Um, You know, if you look at it from the leading team's perspective, you know, they should be rewarded absolutely for building a lead. And that's what the Elam ending does. You know what? If you have a 10-point lead going into the Elam ending, that's absolutely an advantage, but you still have to lean into the finish. I don't think that asking – I don't think it's unfair to ask the leading team to continue scoring uh, points, and I don't think it's unfair uh, to ask the leading team to keep playing uh, tough defense of their own where they can't rely on the clock as a sixth defender. I don't see any of those as unfair advantages or disadvantages. I I think – I think one thing the Elam ending actually does is force both teams to play basketball down the stretch because what we get now with the fouling and, and what, you know, as, as we just pointed out, that is not what they do for the entire rest of the game. And, and so taking that out, this, this weird strategy that only exists within this two or three minute window, I, I think it's good. It's, it's a better product. I mean, we, we saw on Sunday what it looks like. I, I think, you know, under the current format, and, and, you know, I, I do think that Elam ending is necessary and would be a good improvement for the NBA. I actually think there's their level of, of play where the Elam ending is would be even more necessary. But uh, I, I think even in the NBA, there are stretches of the game at the end where the style of play becomes so warped that it's hard to tell what we're even proving at that point. Um, you know, we're trying, obviously, we're trying to identify who's the better basketball team. And, 
what we see at the end of the game is so different from what we've seen all all leading up to that. It's like whether there's a comeback or not, it's like what are we what have we even proven here with the outcome? But like I go back to it, like if it's a one point game, you're not fouling anyways, clock or, or or no clock. So like I don't know necessarily if that's the big issue there. Like for me, I just kind of think we're you're trying to open the door to create more comebacks, you know, and, and I don't know if that's necessarily something that's deserved you know you got to do it within the the game and I don't find it that big of a that's something I really feel like that needs changing or that big of an issue you know I know the game I know the fouling I know people don't necessarily like the fouling and all that stuff but we have free throws throughout the entire game and we have games where Harden shoots free throws all the time and and it's it is what it is but I just think this is part of the game and this is this is part of what goes into it and I think the clock I love I love the clock that it adds another component to this whole thing and it you know you called it the sixth defender and that's that's a good way of pointing at it I I, I like that having that kind of countdown coming down where it puts teams under the gun and it's like yo you got to go do this and you got a small amount of time to pull this off now let's see if you can do it sure so a few things there one is so in a, in a large sample of games this is thousands of, of games uh, in the NBA, we see that fouling strategy late in the game at about 43% of games. And that's uh, that's a considerable amount. And you think about, you know, in, mo- in the overwhelming majority of games where we don't see deliberate fouling, it's because the trailing team has just given up. They don't even bother with fouling because they know that they're it's such a, a bleak outlook that they, they say, let's just throw in the towel. And that's another uh, phenomenon that uh, is, is almost unique. Uh, to basketball to see seem to see teams uh, overtly concede games as often as they do. Uh, so to me, that's that's uh, definitely a considerable percentage of games. But then going to the uh, the sixth defender argument, you know, over the course of the game, we're used to seeing teams score over one point per possession. But when we get to a true buzzer beater situation, uh, that plummets to about zero point two points per possession. And yeah, it's not because the team is the defense is is playing great defense. It's because they get bailed out by the clock. Uh, it's the it's the clock that's doing all the heavy lifting on defense at that point and forcing a shot that if it happened, it's the type of shot that you would if if you saw at any other point of the game, it would go onto a blooper reel. I mean, it's like a ridiculous half court air ball. I mean, uh, just a, a terrible silly shot and that's what's deciding the game to me that's unsatisfying to me that would be like seeing mike trout step up to the plate in the bottom of the ninth and then have to bat left-handed and it's like well i I guess that's cool if he gets a hit but i think i'd rather just see him at his best and that's how i am with basketball too i think basketball is much more exciting uh when we get to see teams and players at their best rather than having to see them uh you know handcuffed I think that that leads nicely into a little bit of what we saw on Sunday. Um, part of it, obviously, is this is this was everyone's first time sort of playing in this in this in, in kind of situation, and I think we kind of saw the team's defaults to what uh, you know we've talked on this show before about you know why does end of game offense kind of look so different, and it's in you know the numbers you gave and they're kind of born out over a long sample that, you know, kind of game winning game tying shots are, you know, low thirties percentage made over a, like a 20 year sample. Um, and that's, and that's in large part because of the, the, the constraint of the clock. Um, and what we saw on Sunday was the teams were still kind of playing that style of offense. And um, 
you know, when we've talked about this before, one of the things you've you've liked to point out is that, you know, you without the clock as that extra defender, you're just trying to score. You're not trying to satisfy any other constraint. And is that something you think that and have you seen in TBT that that's something that looks different? Teams are not aren't just playing, you know, one four low run the clock down. Our best guy shoots a pull up jumper offense. They're actually, as Dave said, playing basketball all the way to the end of the game. Yeah, we we see a mix. Uh, I would say anecdotally that the uh, the successful teams really run their preferred style and, and uh, play to their strengths. And the not so successful teams really start to divert or, uh, from what is their strengths or what got them to that point. And it's interesting uh, to see. And yeah, I think uh, you know, at, at high level basketball, certainly whether you're winning or you're losing, the clock is always something that's in the back of your mind. And I think it takes away a little bit of the assertiveness and killer instinct because you're preoccupied with trying to manipulate the clock somehow. And I think if you take away that electronic third party and now all the focus is just what is on the court, just my team against your team, I think you see much more assertive play and just uh, you restore and revive that killer instinct. I think we saw a little bit of that on Sunday, and I think it's something that I would like to see more of. All right, so one criticism of the game from Sunday is that it ended on a free throw. Um, I know I didn't want to see it. I wanted to see these guys get a bucket to, to win, um, but I understand. You know, a free throw is still a point, and it's a part of the game. Do you have any pushback to people that, that have argued that it shouldn't end on a free throw? Um, I... I welcome this uh, criticism, this particular one, because to me, it it's like someone kind of telling on themselves that if, if they're if they're going to use this as their uh, criticism of the Elam ending, it, it puts things on a T for me, really, because I say, now wait a second, you're telling me that that you don't like to see games decided by free throws. If you don't like to see games decided by free throws, then you should love the Elam ending because it is the norm for games to be decided by free throws under the regular format, and it's the exception under the Elam ending. So far in TBT, we've seen about 15 to 20% of games that end on free throws. And so, you know, it's not my favorite way to see a game end, but I think we just need to be prepared uh, for that uh, small percentage of games to end that way. And, uh, you know, don't let perfection be the enemy of good or don't let perfection be the enemy of improvement. When we spoke the other day, I, I, I kind of asked this question in jest, but... If if any new innovation, uh, there's going to be, you know, smart people trying to figure out how to sort of how to game the system, how to break it. How to, what are what are you concerned about? What is if uh, if I if I pos- posited the hypothetical, what would the Rockets do if this was if this was implemented? What are your concerns for how a team like the st- a strategy that might develop to to break, gamify, make otherwise unsatisfying? Uh, you know, the, this this sort of uh, conclusion to a, to a basketball game? Yeah, great question. So I've always considered myself the toughest critic of the Elam ending. Uh, I try to scrutinize it inside and out. And, uh, you know, I think either, uh, you know, any, any issues that might arise are already kind of baked into the original version, or if anything were to arise, then we could make adjustments as necessary. So one uh, one particular situation is a situation I call the three two one scenario, and this is where uh, the defense is exactly three points from the target score, and the offense. I'm sorry, the offense is exactly three points from the target score, and the defense 
is exactly one or two points away. And the question then is, well, would the defense foul to prevent a game-winning three-pointer? Um, I I would do it personally if I were a coach. We've seen that happen in a handful of games in TBT, and some teams have fouled deliberately. Others have uh, played it out. Now, again, to me, there's there's already a rough equivalent to that uh, in, in the current format where a team tries to prevent a game tying three-pointer. And when you look at that particular scenario, if, if we just let it go as is um, and let that foul, that particular foul happen, you know, it's still it would come up in a small percentage of games. It's not a repeatable strategy. It almost uh, guarantees a thrilling finish afterward. But I still think it can be improved. I would like to see that situation play out more fluidly and in a more fun way. And so for uh, TBT 2020, they're going to introduce a rule where down a stretch, if, if there's a foul on the floor, instead of two shots, it's one shot in the ball. And so that will uh, take away any inclination or any incentive to foul there. And so uh, in a situation like that, it's just, hey, you, you better guard against the three um, and play tough defense, but no reason to foul deliberately there. The other thing that kind of, with the Elam ending, that I feel like we're going to lose certain moments. And I don't, I don't feel like the game always has to end on a made basket. Like sometimes I, I want to, I'm okay for defense makes a big play and blocks the shot at the last second um, and basically wins the game off the game-winning block. Like, I'm all right with that stuff. I think the Elam ending, I mean, it definitely takes that away for sure. And then I also think we're going to lose amazing moments in the sense of Robert Ory's three against the Kings was up at the buzzer and it wasn't, it was literally he had no option but had to shoot that and, and drill it. And I get it. Most of the time these guys miss it. You know, Derek Fisher's point four. Uh, against the Spurs is another one that pops to mind. I mean, like in my head, like images of Magic Johnson running down the the court, uh, pointing to the ball as it's rolling out of bounds uh, off of Portland and they're about to go to the finals. Like these are things, these are moments we're going to lose with the Elam ending. And I, I, and I just feel like that's such a big part of basketball. And I feel like making it so that the game always has to walk or end off of a walk off is really kind of trying to engineer an ending that I don't think is necessarily a, a, a great thing. So it was really striking to me in this in this large sample of games to see that only about 1% of games ends with a meaningful made basket. And even many of those, when all the circumstances align just right to get that buzzer beater, even then the celebration is dampened because you have to go to the monitor for a clock review. And with the Elamini, it takes away all the guesswork from that. So you mentioned like a, a, a game-saving block. I love those too, but even those are far too rare. Uh, you know, about 90% of games end with a team just dribbling out the clock. Sometimes it's even the trailing team dribbling out the clock, like let's please just get this over with, and uh, or taking an otherwise you know, meaningless shot attempt where, the, where whether it's make or miss, it doesn't affect the outcome of the game. Um, you know, I, I look at it, I try to look at it head to head, you know, let's, let's take games that are super close, uh, within three points. And, you know, I, I go to as many TBT games as I can, uh, to get an app, get the feel of the atmosphere in the arena. And I can tell you when those games come down to a sudden death situation like that, uh, it absolutely has the look and the sound and the feel of a buzzer beater and, and ha- has that genuine and spontaneous celebration. It's an uninhibited celebration because there's no need for a review. Uh, so I, I feel like it matches up there. And then if you take any game 
that's decided by four points or more, no matter what the margin is, um, then I would I would take a made basket or putting the ball through the net somehow over any other possible ending to a game that's decided by four points or more. So I feel like, um, you know, yeah, I know I, I hear people, yeah, that they handpick, you know, a game or two uh, from lat, from from 20 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever it might be. And, you know, sure, I, I, I agree that there are some great moments in basketball history, but for any uh, any moment that you can handpick, I'll give you 10 uh great memorable moments that the Elam ending is going to provide. Plus you can get rid of that end of game unwritten rule stuff that always drives me crazy. Um, all right. So you, you fix the end of basketball games. Okay. I mean, it's perfect ending. What's next. What's next. What are you doing next? What, what is the next problem you're going to tackle? So, well, Hey, I mean, I'd like to, have a seat at the table with some of these discussions. So, uh, you know, when it comes to a lot of these ideas, I, I don't want to give out too many more ideas just out in the open, but, uh, when it comes to basketball, are we talking basketball? We're we talking any sport here. Talking anything. Uh, do you want a sandwich named after you, uh, a, a large ship? You know, what is it? So, uh, another sport that's near and dear to my heart is baseball, but, uh, I absolutely feel like baseball has some very pressing on-field issues of the pace and the length of the game and the overabundance of strikeouts and walks. And so um, I've already, I'm already a proponent of an automated strike zone anyway for baseball, but I actually think an automated strike zone opens up the door uh, to use the strike zone as a way to improve uh, the game itself. And so I would advocate for a dynamic strike zone where the strike zone starts a little bit smaller than what we see now for each at-bat. After one strike, it expands to about the size we see now. And after two strikes, if the at-bat's still going, it increases to a size that's a little bit larger than what we see now. What this would do, would it would force pitchers to throw the most hittable pitches early in the at-bat. And for hitters, it would totally get rid of this mindset that I'm going to go up there and try to work the count or see pitches. They have a tangible incentive to put the ball in play early in the at-bat. And so right now, on average, each plate appearance lasts about four pitches. If we could knock that down to three and a half or three pitches per plate appearance on average, you'd be knocking out dozens of pitches uh, throughout the game without getting rid of any of the action. In fact, it would uh, you'd see more action in less time because you're going to see more balls in play. Uh, I, I'm a fan. I'm all in. I'm all in on Dr. Elam. I, like whatever you come up with, uh, I, I think I'm just going to like that. That uh, The baseball solution makes so much sense. I really enjoy that. Uh, Dr. Elam, thanks for coming on the show. It, it was very informative. It was it was nice to actually hear some of the process behind it as well. This is a blast. Have you back anytime. Thank you, Doc. All right. Thank you all. Okay. He, he's gone. Now it's just, <laughs> it's just the Nerder crew. Uh, Mo, you wanted to vet. I'm getting text messages. Uh, that you you're more out on the Elam ending now than you were before we started. So we got to uh, talk about it. No, no, because like here's here's the stuff that it, it, that kind of dawned on me um, that I get it get a chance to really kind of talk back to him about. But like he's just talking about how they dribble out the the ball, you know, the the winning team or whatever dribbles out the ball after you know. He's not talking about the fact that the the team ha- before had the opportunity to whatever take a shot to. Um, whether tie it or, or go up or whatever the situation is or things like that or make it closer or things like that. It's just, 
I'm in it for the All-Star game. I think it's fun for the All-Star game. Let's change it up, you know, change the monotony of the game for the guys and, and, and things like that. I'm, I'm all for it. I'm not in it with the regular season. I'm not in it in the playoffs. If they want to do it in the G League, I'm cool with that. But to me, I want the NBA game. I want the clock. I want the moments. I want all that stuff. And I, I don't want to have to, uh, I don't want to engineer endings. And, and, and to be like, it's always going to end on a made basket, you know? And he's, Seth, you were talking about gameplay. Like, this was the All-Star game was is, is like a special instance, right? With like all these stars. It's almost like Team USA type basketball, right? Everybody's kind of dialing back their game to a degree, except for the two guys that are always going to try to win the MVP. And it, like, I'm curious to see it with teams in the NBA if we're still going to get ISOs. They're still going to match up hunt. I don't know if it necessarily changes anything. It's just now they're up against the shot clock. I don't know if it necessarily gets, gives us the the teams are going to run offense now all the time. You know, I don't know if we get that. There's no there's no that, guarantee in that. There's no guarantee, but I think that when you uh, just from a from a, a strategy perspective, like if you remove again, if you remove the clock as sort of the the, the the second opponent you're playing almost, then the incentive to play with what's an effectively, you know, these late game scenarios, a lot of, a lot of teams play effectively with an eight second shot clock. And, you know, because they, you know, they dribble to the half court, dribble up top for a while, blah, 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 prevent offense uh, just to run some time. Uh, if that like, it's not going to be, it's not snap your fingers and it'll change. It'll be like, wait, there's no, there's no reason to, uh, to play that way, we just we need it in a bucket. We don't. It doesn't matter when in the shot clock this bucket comes. So let's use the whole shot clock and see what we can come up with. I think that the better teams will. I, I think over time the better teams will gravitate towards more recognizable offense. Yeah, they're still going to make sure to have their best players on the floor and run their best stuff. But I don't think it's going to be quite as reductive. In terms of, all right, not only do we need our best player taking a shot, we need our best player taking a shot at this time, which is, which is, I think, and I've I've written about this before. I think is is that's why we end up with the offense we end up with is because you know you you offense has advantage in three ways that you don't know who, when, or or where the shot is going to come from, and end of games like at least two of those things tend to get solved for. So if you open that back out and it's just okay, we got to score. Um, I think it, it it puts that back in the offense's hand to kind of use. And I've heard I've heard Doctor Elam talk about this, like use the whole playbook again. And, and by the way, we have like I don't know if you guys have watched the basketball tournament, but it is true they do run offense down the stretch in those games. I mean, that's how they're getting these buckets. It's not. I mean, as much as I loved LeBron doing the playground move that we've all done. When, you know, three points to win, let me chuck this deep three. And I, but I and, make it. And it was a cool moment. Okay. Uh, it <laughs> was a cool moment. I did like that uh, because we've all been there. It makes it more relatable. But in the basketball tournament, those guys are running offense down the stretch to try to get these these buckets. It's better. It's better because it's actually basketball instead of I'm going to put this guy on the line, hope that he misses free throws. And then, you know, we get desperation offense and, and all these things. I, I, I do think it is a better way to do it. I don't know if I'm sold on doing it, you know, in, in regulation. I would be, be a fan of of making the overtime rules, uh, make it, you know, 11 points or, or whatever you want to do 
uh, for OT instead of the five minutes. But I, I, I think that it's at least a step in the right direction, which is making the end of games more palatable versus what we get now, which is, you know, trips to the free throw line. That's I just boring. I just don't think it's not palatable. I don't even know if I can say that word anymore, but I don't think it's that bad. Like, I honestly think we're just trying to fix something to so fix something. So you're just something. cool with not having to watch the last two minutes of a game if a team's got a five you gotta wa- You got to watch those. No, you don't. We've seen, we've seen teams, teams come back from that. No, no, we've seen teams come back. It may not be at the variance in which it may not happen as often as you want, Dave. One out of but we've seen it. We've seen it more than that, Dave. Come on, man. We've seen some crazy stuff with guys getting put on the free throw line. We saw twice in like two in a week. By the we've way, had two guys. Hold arguments. on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We have we had twice in a week where guys missed free throw shots on purpose, got the rebound, and put it back in to to either games. Like we're missing these kinds of things. Like this is stuff that's I, I enjoy. I don't want one of to your arguments against was the, that that teams shouldn't be rewarded for getting hot at the end of games. I disagree. I think that that's. More in the spirit of of the don't play basketball. three quarters. Just play one quarter. Don't play three quarters, Dave. Just play one quarter. I think of basketball. it's more in the spirit of actual basketball. You have these teams playing the full game, just you instead just, of forty five minutes of the game. Let's just play to fifty. Like, what are we? Let's just do that. Uh, let me. Let's just do that. Let me, let's just Mo. not have a clock at all. What's the point? I, you're, you're you're more onto something with not having a clock than you are to argue against doing the ending this way. <laughs> No, let that. me let me ask Mo something. Let me let me I like I I I, I hope know, the cat I was, attacks you mid question. Yeah, well, she's she's right here, so uh, like I'm I've got one eye on her and one eye on the mic. Um, what I I kind of agree that I'm you know I have questions as to how something like this would work over the course of managing a season. Um, you know, in terms of of. Uh, you know, getting guys reps, getting guys rests, rotation, stuff like all those things that go into managing a regular season. Um, I do think, though, that there are, are some things about it, and this is why it has appealed to me, is we've we've talked about ways in which to make the game kind of stand for itself. Uh, and, and, you know, I think this potentially moves us more towards that, where every game kind of has a has a defined sort of story that's that's self-contained and isn't necessarily uh, uh, tied to well, what are the playoff implications? What are the free agency implications? Who's on the trade? Like all that transactional stuff that we agree, I think we all agree, is like over oversaturated right now in NBA discourse. So I guess my question to you, Mo, is like you know, if this was implemented, say in the G League, is there something that you could see over how it plays out over a season or two? That might convince you, or you just like you just know this is I, I see basketball this way, and, I, and and I'm I'm obviously framing the question in a way that makes you sound like you know right yeah you're old, old man me, yells at cloud. By the way, you're trying to be but really I, don't, I, don't, I don't I don't but I don't I don't I don't I don't mean it that way because I like I think you you have the, you you have a re, you have a, like that traditionalist point is is reasonable in this case like the, the thing works pretty well. I'm just wondering if there's something that you could see over this playing out over a season or two that would. That that would soften, change your mind. You say, no, actually, that works pretty well. I really quick, you know, game to game. Yeah, I have a prediction. I, we're going to see this at summer league. That's fine. I, I, so, yeah, but I summer will, league, who cares? I'm just saying. Like, so you're summer league's barely get basketball. Big sample size. Summer. I mean, it's it, it doesn't. It's not going to. I don't know, Seth. Is to be honest with you, right? Like, you, I'd, I'd have to watch and implement it in the G League and watch way more G League games than I do now. 
right? Like it's it's just one of those things. And and for everybody as I love how we're crediting the system for the the getting the guys to care in terms of of the really the big thing was just their intensity level raised up, right? In that fourth quarter. You know, cuz that's something different. You know, 3 years ago when they changed how they did the the all-star team and everybody picked teams. We had a good all-star game and, and, and the intensity level picked up in the fourth quarter and teams, both teams were trying generally down the stretch. And then two years, two years following that were crappy all-star games. Like let's see how this plays out over the next few all-star games before we start to go like, Oh, this is, you know, this is the end all be all. It just happened to be on the first try. We got a phenomenal ending and we got a great effort from the guys. Let's see what it's like when, you know, when, there, the target's 157, and LeBron's team has 156, and Giannis's team is at 147. Let's see how hard Giannis's team tries to defend at that point. That's a fair point. Uh, like we're just, we're just, we're just automatically crediting this for the reason why we had a a, a really great All Star game, and not looking at other factors. And I think let's let's just kind of like pump the brakes here a bit. Like this is where we get too excited. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, obviously, we're all very excited about the fun All-Star weekend uh, and the Elam ending. Uh, thanks to John Hollinger. Thanks to Dan Feldman. And uh, special thanks to Dr. Elam because, uh, you know, I know he's a busy guy and uh, it was cool that he decided to come on and get prodded a little bit, especially, you know, given the fact that Mo Mo wanted to attack him over the ending. I didn't want uh, to attack him. It was just I had questions and I had my, I want to verbalize. You wanted, to, I, I, you wanted to sick my cats on him. That's right. I thought he did a good job of answering the questions. But anyway, uh, for Seth Partnow, for Mo DeKeel, I'm Dave DeFore, and we'll be back next week with more Nerd or She Wrote.